So uh, right now we are in this period of time where we are not going to work. We're not going or a lot of us are not going into a particular workplace. A lot of us are working from home. A lot of us are uh, nonetheless spending time at home, spending more time at home. And what this has led to is like a lot of people are doing online shopping. And so so, you know, that's great. Uh, You are able to buy things online. It's exciting. You're still able to get what you need. But here's the reality. Like when you shop online, you have access to so much more than you have access to in the store. And so the world of online shopping actually creates greater opportunity for some people to offer you a cheaper, lesser alternative to the products that you know and love. So uh, so I want to show you something real quick. Uh, This is a case for Apple AirPods. Um, And uh, I'll just kind of show you the AirPods that the AirPods are in the case right now, although you may notice something. Uh, one of them is missing. So, so I have an Apple AirPod right here, but, but the other one is missing. And the reason it's missing is because I flushed it down the toilet. Uh, so, so I flushed my AirPod down the toilet. That was really unfortunate. And, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I, uh, I was like, you know, to buy AirPods again, AirPods are pretty expensive. Like there, that's a lot of money to fork up. And so I was not inclined to buy the, the actual product, but I, I looked on Amazon and there were like these $40 Bluetooth earphones and, uh, and I bought them and yeah, so that's good. Here they are. These are my, my $40 Bluetooth earphones. And, um, you know, there's a reason they don't cost as much as Apple AirPods. Like I have to be honest with you. Uh, there, there were there were a lot of just ways that the, the AirPods offered convenience to me. Like they really like improved my life in many different ways. They they connected to all of my devices quickly. Like they were just nice. Like I've had to, I've actually had to take these. I've put uh, these things that I just bought. I've put electrical tape over them. And the reason I've done that is because they have this blue light that flashes on them the entire time that you're on there, uh, that they're in your ears. And, uh, and so I, I listen to music when I'm sleeping at night. And so I'll put one of them in and then, uh, that blue light will be flashing all night and it will drive my wife crazy. And so now I've had to, uh, to, to put some tape over that to, to protect it. Like that's just one in a series of ways that, uh, these kind of knockoff products, are more inconvenient than the Apple AirPods. And, and the reason that is, is because the knockoff, the cheaper product, like whatever you want to call it, it can't compete with the original. So where else is this true? This is true of Oreos. Like knockoff Oreos cannot, I love Oreos, y'all. Knockoff Oreos cannot compare with real Oreos. This is true of Ritz crackers because you buy knockoff Ritz crackers and you know what happens when you do that. You reach into the packet and you grab the knockoff Ritz cracker and it turns to dust in your fingers because it's knockoff, right? That's a problem. Okay, so uh, this for me was when I was a kid, all of my friends traded uh, Pokemon cards and uh, I wanted to be like my friends, so I wanted to trade Pokemon cards too. And my parents knew that I wanted this. Uh, however, there were knockoff Pokemon cards, and my parents didn't know any better. They had no idea what they were doing, but they're like, oh, I'm going to buy this for my son. And so they go to the store and they buy the knockoffs. And of course, like I have this worst version of Pokemon cards. So, like, I uh, show to my friends, and my friends don't want anything to do this. Like, they don't want to trade those cards because it's the knockoff, right? Like imitations, knockoffs, like these cheaper versions, there's a reason that they're cheaper. 
It's because they can't compete with the original. Okay, so our story today. We are getting ready to confront uh, what is at the root of the darkness that exists in the Egyptian culture. Because Egypt, it was an oppressive society. And, and at the root of that oppressive society was this religious system that, that sought power from a bunch of knockoff gods. So, so Egypt had actually given itself wholesale to, uh, to cheaper versions of the one true God. They were idolaters. So uh, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is the process by which you make anything an ultimate thing. Idolatry is the process by which you make anything an ultimate thing. So this is how Egypt did it. They took a bunch of really good things in their society, things like water and crops and rain and sun, and they made these things ultimate things. They actually developed practices around worshiping, worshiping these things. Uh, they perpetuated stories about how these things actually offer their power to people. Uh, they built statues to represent these things. They carved figurines to keep these things in their homes and, and have blessing on their home. And then at the end of the day, instead of seeking after the creator of all things, they settled for counterfeit knockoff gods and oriented their lives entirely around those things. So, uh, so last week, we left this uh, Moses and God. They had this exchange with each other. And God, once again, had reaffirmed his plan to Moses that he was going to deliver Israel. And today, we're going to start to see this plan unfold as God actually starts to roll out his judgment against Egypt through the plagues. And as that happens, we're going to begin to see God's intention with the plagues. This is what God is going to do. Yahweh, the I am, Yahweh will systematically slay the gods of Egypt. Like he's going to go one by one. He's going to go down their roster of gods, the things that they have chosen to worship, their idols, and he is systematically going to put each and every one of them to shame. He's about to disrupt every source of confidence that exists in Egypt, everything that they made ultimate. And, the re and so, so we got to talk about the reason that he's going to do this before we actually get into the actual plague. I want to ask the question, why? Like, why does Yahweh chose to, choose to focus his energy on this? Because he could have, he could have just chosen to pull Israel out of Egypt, like just to, to do it right then. But he's going through this process where he's actually putting every single one of the gods to, to shame, where he's slaying every single one of the gods. So why slay the gods? The answer is in Exodus 7.5. It says this, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, so these plagues, like what, what God is about to do, what Yahweh is going to do is he, he wants the Egyptians to understand who he is. Like this is about more than just Israel, but he's also doing something for the Egyptians. Like this is odd. Because shouldn't he, like, as we think about God, shouldn't God just be about, like, what's for his people? But instead, he's allowing his people to actually endure a greater period of hardship so that the Egyptians will see him for who he is. So there's a principle for us to pull out of this as we begin looking at these plagues, and it's this. God is always in the business 
of helping more people come to know him. He's always doing this. He's always in the business of his revealing his glory for more people. Like even the promises of Israel were not just for Israel, but it was about uh, through you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Like when, when God promises to Abraham uh, about this big nation that he's going to have, it's not just a promise about Israel. It's a promise about all the families that are going to be blessed through Israel. So, so this is not... God's only reason for doing things this way, but it is among his reasons. So so pay attention to this as the story unfolds, because as Yahweh, he begins to put these Egyptian idols to open shame. Some Egyptians will actually have their eyes open to who he is. Like there will be Egyptians who place their faith in the God of Israel when they leave Egypt. They will actually go with Israel out of Egypt. So others in Egypt may not come to faith, but there are some in Egypt who actually will come to faith in Yahweh because he's the one who shamed the gods that they had come to place their faith in all their life. So Moses, at the command of Yahweh, he's now going to approach Pharaoh, and he's going to enact the first plague of judgment against Egypt. So Exodus 7.14, shutting down the source of life. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. So let's talk about the Nile for a second. The Nile was the center of all Egyptian life. It was the thing that made Egypt actually so successful as a nation because they had this place of abundance, like the Nile River Delta. Uh, is this place of abundance in the middle of what is effectively desert all around them. So the Nile Delta, it would actually like flood and recede. It would go through this pattern of flooding and receding, and it would make the soil there great for growing crops. Uh, and it would also provide fish for the people in Egypt to eat. Like the, the Nile made Egypt's economy function. It, it connected them to other parts of the world. Like the Nile was uh, contributing to the flourishing of life in Egypt. The Nile is actually a really good thing for them. But But remember – our definition of idolatry. Idolatry is the process by which you make anything an ultimate thing. And so the Nile was a really good thing, but the Egyptians did some something like really dumb. They, they took a good thing and they made it into an ultimate thing. They made the Nile actually into a god. So the Egyptians identified the Nile, and this is how they referred to it. They referred to it as the source of all life. So, so happy was the, the name of the God that the Egyptians associated with the Nile. And the Egyptians would actually honor happy as, as central to their life and livelihood. So I want you to read this hymn with me that was written to the Egyptian God, happy. It says this, hail to your countenance, happy, who goes up from the land who comes to deliver Kemet. Kemet is the word in Egyptian for Egypt. So comes to deliver Egypt. Who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of his good things, who is enduring of customs, who returns at his due season, who fills upper and lower Egypt. Everything that has come into being is through his power. There is no district of living men without him. So here, at the center of Egyptian life is the Nile. 
And every time an Egyptian person sees the Nile, they think that is my source of life. Like that's where I get my meaning and significance. So they took this good thing and they made it into an ultimate thing. Now, the reality is uh, we are constantly in danger of doing the very same thing, except uh, the problem is, is we don't call these things God, but functionally they become for us gods. So this might be intimacy, it might be alcohol, it might be work, it might be success, it might be economy, it might be our standard of living, it might be our stuff. Like all of these, all of these are like fine things. All of these, uh, some of these are good things, but the problem is, is that often they can become ultimate things and they will fail us after they ruin us. So, so Moses, he's now, he's going to go and he's going to meet with Pharaoh at the source of life, at the Nile. So verse 16, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So, so Pharaoh is in this place where he is not inclined to recognize a higher authority than himself. So verse 17, it goes on. Thus says the Lord, by this, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the, Nile, the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. It goes on in verse 19 and says, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So just to understand what's happening here. Uh, for the Egyptians, water came from the Nile. Uh, the Nile was the source of life. Therefore, water to them was equivalent with life. Water was like a picture of life for them. So whereas water was equivalent to, to life, uh, in the ancient Near East, blood was a picture of death. So when blood now comes into the Nile, uh, what used to be a source of life now will become for the Egyptians full of death. So when this plague takes place, this source of life for them will uh, promote death throughout the land. In fact, the central aspect of their whole society will become a source of disdain for them. Uh, the, it says that it will become like stink to them. They'll hate it. So verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. So, so right there in front of Pharaoh, right there in that moment, the source of life became a rotting, putrid representation of death. Like Yahweh revealed his power over the Egyptian source of life. In a moment, he shut down their entire economy. He damaged all their food supply. He took away their water, and he made a mockery of the things that they had turned into a god. So then watch how Pharaoh responds in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So these magicians of Egypt, these guys are Pharaoh's emissaries. Pharaoh is uh, is a representative of the gods. In fact, he is seen as deity or as on a, an equal level with the gods. 
And, and these guys, they should be able to impress if they are emissaries of Pharaoh, if their God is actually worth it. Like they they should be able to bring their God back to life. Right. They should be able to to do something to change the way that Moses has damaged it. But at the end of the day, when Pharaoh calls them out to do a trick, all they can do is actually copy the trick. Like they can't fix the economy. They can't clean up the water. They can't fix the food. When they come toe-to-toe with Yahweh, their gods actually are cheap counterfeits. They're knockoffs. So uh, so there was a point that was already actually proven to Pharaoh the last time that Moses and Aaron visited him. And we actually skipped over this part. We're going to go back to this point right here, uh, Exodus 7, 10 through 12. Moses and, uh, and Aaron, they pay a visit to Pharaoh. And this is what happened. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Here's the most important part. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So uh, just three quick observations about these magicians. The first thing to notice is that dark magic is real. It's a real thing. That's why scripture is talking about it. Like their ability to perform miracles is not something made up, but it actually takes place. And so this dark magic, it's as real as disease. It's as real as physical things. And in church, there's something to understand here is that the spiritual realm is as real to us as the physical realm. The problem is, is we just don't see it. So, so to this day, you know what? I have non-believing friends who have active spiritual oppression in their lives. Like they, they are uh, experiencing uh, things um, that, that are unexplainable, uh, and they happen over and over and over again for these people. And, and you can trace what's happening to these people back to a decision that they made to deal with this kind of stuff, whether it be Ouija boards or something like that. Like they made this decision. Um, and so dark magic is real, uh, an illustration of this. Uh, or just something to like deal with the, the reality of how we should be handling this or how this should be fitting for us. So um, when I was in college, uh, I had a group of friends. Uh, we all lived in a suite together. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody kind of did their own thing. But um, when when we lived in the suite, there was one time they were going to they were actually going to all like use a Ouija board or something like that in, in the suite. And uh, I just I just said, hey, uh, no. Like not in uh, this room, like I kind of have responsibility over this room. Like um, I would just if you're going to do it, please do it somewhere else. And the question that was asked to me was, are you really that superstitious? And at the end of the day, like what I said, you know what? It's not superstition. This is my room, too. So please just like honor my request. But I responded like that because I knew that the decision to mess with this stuff is as dangerous and as real as like injecting disease into your body or stepping out onto a crowded highway. Like what's clear here is that these magicians have some influence and control over something that is very real. Uh, and, And they're invested kind of in this spiritual realm and it enables them to perform real actual miracles. Okay, so that's the first thing to see. The second thing to see here is that dark magic is forbidden because it is a knockoff. So dark magic, uh, or whatever you want to categorize this as, at its core, is a blatant decision 
to seek power and authority from created things, whether those things be spirits or angels or demons or what the Egyptians called gods rather than the creator. So so the the decision to invest yourself in this, it, it openly mocks the one true God because it requires people to elevate spirits above him. So what happens in this story is that that God actually he blatantly displays that the Egyptians get their power from knockoff gods. Like sure they can do tricks, but Yahweh's power is behind Moses and Aaron. Their God is bigger and stronger than the Egyptian gods. So how much more would that message carry over when the the staff, the staff that actually swallowed up the other staffs, like that's what displays that these gods are actually knockoff gods because the the staff that turned into a snake, it it swallowed up the other snakes, right? That's what happened. Like Aaron's staff was stronger. It was showing that Yahweh's power was stronger than the power of the gods. So, So how much more would that message carry over when that very same staff was held over the source of all of the Egyptian economy, over the source of everything that Egyptian uh, that Egypt looked to as good, and in a matter of seconds, it crippled. When that staff was held out over the Nile, it crippled the entire land of Egypt. And all that the Egyptians can do, all these magicians can do, is actually just perform the same trick. They can't do anything to fix what was done. And in that instance, Yahweh's power over these gods is displayed. The third thing, the dark magic um, that we can observe about this is that idolatry blinds us into loving the knockoff. You know what? Uh, this could have this could have created a very aware and intentional moment for Pharaoh and the magicians. Like if they're paying attention, the writing is on the wall. I am. Yahweh is stronger than our gods. Like they could have in this moment repented. They could have turned. They could have obeyed what God was saying. But but their hearts, they have been steeped in this idolatry for a long time and they have a hard time letting it go. And so uh, so so this thing has held their affection for so many years, and they will let it, and we'll watch in the story, they will let this crush them again and again and again before they actually let it go and obey God. So I want you to watch with clarity how Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they respond to all of this. When this, um, this takes place in Egypt, Yahweh's power over Egypt is displayed with clarity. With everything that has taken place, Yahweh has made an incredibly, undeniably clear statement to everyone who's watching. I am your source of life. That's the statement that he has made. He's made it to Pharaoh. He's made it to the Egyptians. He's made it to Moses and Aaron. So let's see how they respond. Verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. Pharaoh, right in front of his eyes, he watched the central aspect of life in his entire country get demolished, get slayed by Yahweh in a matter of seconds. But he is choosing to ignore uh, we're going to actually, in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to deal with the concept of Pharaoh's hard heart. 
But I think right here, we should actually just be amazed at what happens because right in front of his eyes, this took place. But he responds by just kind of ignoring it. So I want you to see when life shut down, Pharaoh doubled down in arrogance. When life shut down, Pharaoh doubled down in arrogance. Like he looked at what God had done and defiantly decided that he wasn't going to do anything with it. He was going to continue living his life as he pleased. He wasn't going to deal with it. You know what? This is going to be a pattern again and again and again for Pharaoh. In his arrogance, he will decide that all of God's acts are not going to change him until God rocks him hard enough that he doesn't have a choice anymore. Verse 24, watch how the Egyptians respond. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So the Egyptians at this point, they are scrambling to stay hydrated. I also suspect that they are scrambling to get some of life in them. Uh, when the Egyptians would drink water from the Nile, this was how they would participate actually in worship of the Nile. Because as they drank the water, they believed they were drinking the life of the Nile into their bodies. And so there's, there's, uh, this is not just them scrambling to, uh, to stay hydrated. It is them scrambling to maintain their standard of worship as well. They're scrambling to do this in a way that they have to do it. The way that they're scrambling is that they're digging in the mud pits. They're digging down into the mud and trying to get the, the, the moisture and the water out of that to find – they're actually – they're drinking mud to find any kind of hydration that they can. And so, so I want you to see the, about the Egyptians. When life shut down, the Egyptians responded with panic and desperation. Egypt panicked in desperation. You know what? They didn't know what to do because the very thing – that they had come to rely on for their life suddenly reeked of death to them. So I don't want you to miss, you know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. At this point, they both had an opportunity. Like instead of panicking, instead of frantically searching for answers, instead of doubling down in pride, they could, in this moment, they could have turned toward Yahweh. So church, the main point this morning is this. When life shuts down, turn to the source of life. When life shuts down, turn to the source of life. So what? So what? Number one, don't confuse the gifts that sustain life with the source of your life. Don't confuse the gifts that sustain life with the source of your life. So uh, so I don't want to bash good things, but for just a second, there are a number of things in our life that are sustaining to us that many people have uh, caused to turn into idols, to, uh, that many people have, have named as the source of life. So, uh, so an example of this, you know, America. America is a, a gift from God. Our country is a gift from God. It is, it is a good thing. Like the, the establishment of our nation has legitimately increased flourishing. Um, but but uh, many people have turned America and even our history and the kind of things that we are, we've turned it into uh, a, a source of worship for us. 
like a thing that if we are not able to get back to this thing, then uh, we will somehow lose meaning or significance or importance or something like that. Right. So so America, for many people, has become a source of meaning Um, family. A lot of people, family is a true gift from God. Family, family is a, a piece of the bedrock of society. Like family is a really good thing, but many people can turn family, especially out in the suburbs. Like everybody's trying to create the best life that they can for their family. Everybody finds their identity in being able to have a family. Uh, but if that becomes the, the source of your identity or your meaning or your significance, then uh, that, that becomes an idol, right? That's not – you, you've taken something – that is a good thing and you've turned it into an ultimate thing. This could you can do this with job security. You can do this with wealth. And we're not here to bash these things. Like these are good things. We should call them out for what they are. But when they become ultimate things and you live and you get your identity and your significance from these things, then they will ultimately end up crushing you because they cannot be for you what only God can be. All of these things are good things, but they are not the best thing. Like all of these things are really, really good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. So anything, anything that sustains our life or or gives us some level of purpose, they can easily become cheap knockoffs without us even knowing it. You know, this is what the Nile was for the Egyptians. This is they they looked at this thing that was sustaining life in their society and they turned it into an ultimate thing. You know, when these things, they become the thing that give our life meaning and purpose and significance. They become the ultimate thing for us. Like we have to we have to evaluate. We have to be aware of when we're knocking God down a notch and placing things above him. So what thing Here's just a question to reflect on. What thing, if you took it away, would make you feel as though you've lost your meaning and purpose? When you can answer that question, that is what you worship. That thing that if you took it away would make you feel as though you've lost your meaning and purpose. That is what you worship. That is what is ultimate for you. So don't let a good thing become an ultimate thing. Number two in the so what's, don't settle for the knockoff. So, you know, I asked the question this week, and, and I even called up Pastor Don and was just trying to process with him and understand our culture a little bit. And I asked him the question, you know, what is our Nile equivalent? What is the thing that makes every other thing in our society function? What is the thing that our culture is built around? And so, friends, this morning, I want to tell you the Nile of our culture, and Pastor Don pointed this out to me with clarity. I believe it absolutely. The Nile of our culture is personal autonomy and freedom. It's encapsulated in a statement like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of of my soul. It is encapsulated in an idea like my life is my own and I do with it as I please. Uh, protecting my rights is what is ultimate to me. You hear it in catchphrases like have it your way. Uh, you hear it in uh, phrases like live your truth or you can be whatever you want to be. This idea, personal autonomy and freedom, it is what fuels all of our marketing and all of our advertising in our society. And I tell you what, like Personal autonomy and freedom is not like a bad thing. Uh, Now sit with me for a second because what it came out of, it, it was a reaction against governments who force their ways of thinking upon their people. They're forced to the forced ways of being upon their people. And it was a desire to live free from the oppression of a particular government or a particular monarchy or however you want to 
think of it. You know what? And it's good. Like it is good that that people should be able to make their own decisions, right? It's good to learn how to be independent, to think for yourself. But we have taken as a culture, we have taken this good thing and made it an ultimate thing. We've taken it to the point where the thought of needing God to sustain us has all but disappeared. We've pretty much figured everything out on our own. We know how to satisfy our own desires. We know how to take care of our own needs. We know how to get what we want, and we don't need God. Or maybe the, the only thing that we really need him for is maybe just a little bit of fire insurance on the other side of this life. Like, God, we've got this part of life handled. We've got this side of things handled. So if you could just take care of the other side of things, that would be good. So I'll take my personal autonomy and freedom while I'm alive. But, uh, God, you can just handle the back end of things on the other side of my death. Like, I would appreciate that. So here's a warning. It's really easy to miss this way of thinking, this idea of personal autonomy and freedom. It's really easy to miss this way of thinking, creeping into our own thought processes and shaping how you process the world. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote? If this is like the Nile River for us, what is the antidote? The antidote is this turn to the source of life. And in order to do that, to close the sermon this morning, I want to read for you Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what it says. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that you are not dependent on yourself, that you do not exist for your own autonomy and freedom, but you exist to live as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me this morning, please? Heavenly Father, as we look at societies and the way societies tend to form themselves around things, where we tend to turn the things into ultimate things. And Lord, I'm sure many of us, even as we're evaluating ourselves this morning, we can look at some things in our life that we have tended to make ultimate. And Lord, you desire us to turn towards you as what is ultimate for us. Lord, as you reveal to us, even as you go through Egypt and you begin knocking down these gods one by one, you begin revealing your power to Egypt. Your desire is to draw people to yourself. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is that we, as we encounter these things, that you would draw us towards yourself. Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would slay the idol of personal autonomy and freedom that exists inside of us, that we may set it aside and live as sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Jesus, we trust you to do this. And, and, and this morning, as we look at the wonder of your gospel, the wonder of your grace towards us, may it be your love and your goodness that leads us to repentance and that knocks that idol off of the shelf and, and, and shows us your goodness and your glory. Lord, I pray for this time as we look towards you in communion, that it might... Um, well up our hearts with gladness that 
that we are following you, that you are the one who has called us out. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.